Hi everyone, I'll just wait for the last people in the waiting room to join us here. Thank you for joining us today for our third module of the SDA Adolescent Webinar Series. I'm Bethany Allison, the SDA in-house dietitian, and today I'd like to introduce our presenter, Nikki Jacock. Nikki is an advanced sports dietitian and APD and has had a career spanning 18 years working in clinical, community and elite athlete environments. She currently works at the Australian Institute of Sport as the Senior Sports Dietitian and Disordered Eating Project Lead. Nikki has extensive experience working, initiating and implementing nutrition systems for elite sporting teams and individual athletes to maximise health and performance outcomes. Throughout her career, Nikki has worked with athletes as they progress from entry into pathway programs all the way through to representation at senior international and professional team level. Earlier this year, Nikki was a recipient of an Australian Sports Commission Award for her contribution to the Australian Institute of Sport and National Eating Disorders Collaboration Statement on Disordered Eating in High Performance Sport. You're invited to post any questions as you think of them using the chat box and I'll facilitate the questions for Nikki to answer at the end of today's session. And we ask that you do post your questions. If by chance, like last time, we sort of run right to the limit, we will um, ask Nikki to answer those and post them onto Moodle for you. This webinar is being recorded and we'll load it onto Moodle platform post-event. Um, but for now, I'd like to hand you over to Nikki. Thanks so much, Beth. I will just share my screen. How did I do? Have you got that, Beth? Yep, that's great. Okay, perfect. Alrighty. Hello, everyone. Thanks heaps for joining us today. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands on which we meet today. For me, it is the Ngunnawal people, and I would like to pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Um, I had the pleasure of working with Anne Embry in developing today's presentation. Anne is an experienced dietitian who works in clinical and community health settings, including private practice. She works with women, youth and children's program in Canberra and specialises in early childhood feeding, working with young people, working with women with a trauma background and also specialises in eating disorders. Anne couldn't make it today, but the content I'll be presenting is a combination of both our work and a massive thanks to Anne for her time and expertise. So as you know, this is a five-part uh, module series and we've had, we're up to number three. So module one, um, I'm assuming that many of you have gone back and done the pre-learning, um, but I do just want to spend a couple of brief minutes just talking about some stuff because we are building on um, what was covered in module one and module two. So module one was Pascal and Zoe pre-recorded pre-learning um, as Beth said everything is up on Moodle so you can go back if you've missed it. There was some it was a really great presentation and then some key learnings around growth and maturation um, and for me there was a lot of really useful in information around the importance of understanding where an adolescent athlete sorry that was a hard one adolescent athlete let's hope I get that right because I'm going to say it a few times um, where they sit on their growth and maturation trajectory, goodness, I'll only do that one once, um, and also the nutritional considerations to support the maturation process. Last month, we had our first live session with Ben and Sharon, and some key points from that were around adequate energy intake being essential to support normal growth plus energy for training. Um, and a key then follow-up with that is that the energy demands from training generally are greater than the energy needs for growth. And that's an important thing that we will um, be talking about today as well. Iron, calcium, protein in both of the modules were talked about as being nutrients most at risk of insufficiency. And Ben and Sharon also introduced Sarah, a case study. So Sarah was a 15 year old swimmer who we are actually going to revisit at the end of today's presentation and, and continue on with Sarah's journey, I guess. So as you know, today's session is module three, and we're really going to be taking what we've learned so far from, from modules one and two and, and building on that, but also taking a real practical approach. There is a pre-recorded presentation by Dr. Adam 1040 that fits within this module. If you haven't watched it already, it's absolutely fine. Up on Moodle, you can go back and watch it at any point. 
um, Adam talks about low energy availability in youth runners and highlights and summarises some really great research in this space. So I would recommend, um, if you haven't seen it, to go back and then have a look. And then we've got module four and five to come. So let's dive into it. Here are our learning, learning objectives for today. And for me, it's really about assessing, diagnosing, preventing and treating acute and chronic energy and nutrient imbalances in young athletes. So we've got a little bit to get through. I will make sure I keep an eye on the time because um, we don't want to run over. So I will just keep checking every now and then. But let's get into the first objective. All right. So let's look at identifying situations or assessing reasons that may lead to acute and chronic energy and nutritional imbalances in young athletes. So this for me is we really want to get a sense of what our athletes are eating what they're, and, and if what they're eating meets their needs as both an adolescent and as an athlete. So we've heard in the past modules that there are differences in nutritional requirements compared to adolescents. So now we're wanting to assess what they're eating, why they're eating what they're eating, and the reasons that there may be, may be gaps in their intake and also potential barriers to change. All right, so first thing we wanna do is we're wanting to gain insight into the adolescent as an individual. And so we really wanna develop rapport um, with the adolescent and potentially if there's um, parents in the room, and I will talk more about parents as we go along today, but we are wanting to develop rapport we really want to be taking a neutral questioning approach and being non-judgmental in our questions, clarifications, discussions. So we're trying to create this environment where the adolescent feels comfortable to share information with us uh, without feeling judged and, and also like you're going to make them change what they're doing. So I love this phrase and it's something that I try and, try and do a lot is that our aim is to really, we're trying to walk alongside the adolescent. So I could spend a lot of time talking about some of these things, so I will be conscious of not spending too much time here. But what is life like for this adolescent? So things like their lifestyle, what year are they in at school, where do they go to school, what's the home environment like, the parental relationship, I will talk about that more, um, financial pressures in the home. What's their training load? So Sarah came to us, we knew she was a swimmer, but something that is often very important is to get an understanding of their other sports going on for this athlete. You know, our adolescent athletes can often participate in more than one sport. So what's the training load look like for those different sports? We also want to get a sense of what's the energy expenditure outside of training. Is there any, is there much level of support in their daily training environment? I guess by that is there strength and conditioning coaches, physios, the like, or not? Is it, you know, for a lot of our adolescent athletes, it might just simply be coach and athlete but getting a sense of the support systems around the athlete can be really important. Um, their medical history, illness, injury, um, current and past being really important. The growth history of an adolescent being really useful, and this is where a parent might be really uh, useful. They have growth charts and be able to talk about what the growth looked like for the child, for the adolescent when they were a child is what I was trying to say, sorry. Um, we're trying to gain insight into their nutrition knowledge. So both as an adolescent and also for their sport, what was their level of knowledge like? Do they have a sense of what they might need to meet their requirements? Is their past nutrition education want to know about? Um, school subjects, I often find that um, it can be really useful to get a sense of what nutrition they've studied at school because that can then help, you can, you know, you can then build on that. Background of trauma, important to find out about. What are their current food choices? Um, something that both Pascal and, and Ben and Sharon talked about was that our adolescents, uh, it, it's a state where it can be highly influential by people outside of the home. So I guess with young children, the influence is much more the parents. But once our, our athletes become adolescents, then it's, the influence can be more outside of the home. And it's really important for us as sports dietitians to get an understanding who might be influencing their nutritional intake and eating behaviours. So questions I might ask here is who do you look up to in general? But then you could also look specifically around their sport or another sport um, 
sometimes I've and I've worked with a program in the past where I've had both adolescent athletes in the same squad as the senior elite athletes and so getting a sense of what position and knowing what position the athlete plays for example and who they might be comparing themselves to and looking up to and wanting to be like can be important because you also you know in that example you know, I knew the squad knowing what the nutritional um, practices let's say of of the more senior athlete can help also to get a sense of what influences this adolescent athlete might have around the sporting team environment. Um, it can be common uh, that eating at school can reflect patterns of the friendship group. So things like skipping eating times or avoiding eating particular foods. Um, it can be really useful to find out who at school um, they might be influenced by and what that might look like on eating behaviour. Um, the, and there could also be too an impact of the young athlete having to eat more than their peers. So, um, you know, is this something that is a challenge for them? Um, does it something that separates them and makes them different? I vividly remember a young athlete I worked with talking about how she didn't feel like she could eat uh, foods like chips or chocolate or that kind of thing at school because she actually had experience of coaches not coaches, wrong word, sorry, teachers and, um, you know, fellow classmates making comments about the food she ate. Oh, you're an athlete, you shouldn't eat that. And so um, trying to get a sense of what might influence in our food intake is really important. Something else I'd want to be getting a, gaining insight into is who might influence the athlete from a body image, weight, body composition goals point of view. And so again, this could be within their sport, it could be in another sport, it could also be outside of sport. And the link to that is then having a sense of who they follow on social media. So what does their social media stream look like? What kind of messages might they be getting um, and coming up and pictures and the like um, through their social media feed? And the other thing I'd be wanting to look at is, and trying to investigate, and we're really trying to get some insight into what are some potential barriers to changing intake? And we'll talk about that <clears throat> more in a second. Apologies about my voice. So I've kind of touched on this already, but there's two key points I want to make before we move on, and that's that we're really wanting to try and, <clears throat> I'm really sorry, explore the athlete's relationship to food, and I've said this, but I'll keep saying it, from a real non-judgmental and that opening questioning standpoint. So asking questions like, how do you decide um, when to eat? How do you decide what to eat? How do you decide how much you're going to eat? And asking those open questions and giving them a chance to respond um, can tell you a lot about the athlete and what's going on for them. Questions like, are there foods you try not to eat? What is your experience of trying to limit or avoid these foods can give you a lot of insight into the athlete. Are there times when you might feel out of control with your eating? What do you notice when? What happens when? Et cetera, et cetera. So there are just some examples. So we're trying to explore their relationship with food. We're also trying to explore their relationship with their body. Um, and so a question that we might look at and asking there is, um, what age were you when you first noticed having concerns about your body size or shape? Um, and so a red flag here could be that if there was increased body image awareness before 11 or 12, so sorry, the flip of that is that um, body increased body image awareness typically occurs at 11 or 12. So if you have an athlete who's talking about, you know, at seven or eight or nine, um, I became very aware of my body and, you know, there were comments, um, et cetera, et cetera, that could be a real red flag of quite an early um, awareness and potentially over awareness of their body image. And I'm getting a sense of their family members' own relationship with their body so that could be mum and or dad um, you know what's it like in the house so their own body image but also their opinion on the adolescent's body um, you know are their body is there a lot of body talk body commenting food talk that kind of stuff getting a sense of that environment can be really useful and here um, I've put that we want to be identifying their social body image but also their athlete body image um, and I kind of mentioned this when I was talking about the influence of nutrition intake, that often we probably may assume that our adolescent athletes' body image would be more um, influenced by their sport and being an athlete. 
Um, but we would never assume, and I think that's it goes with everything I say here that we should never assume, should we? Because, um, you know, and I've had examples of athletes who are much more influenced and more very aware that they look different to their friends at school. When they were in the sporting context, they were, their body image was potentially a little bit better, let's put it that way, because they, you know, quote, unquote, fit in a bit more, but were very conscious that compared to their school um, school friends that their body was different as an athlete. So I'd really want to explore that, again, that open questioning, get them to talk about their body and how they feel about their body, both in a social context and also in an athlete context. Okay. So when we're looking at assessing energy imbalance, um, for me, we're really looking at assessing, okay, is there low energy availability going on? So I don't want to spend too much time talking about low energy availability, um, assuming everyone is aware of and, and you know, is well-versed in LEA. Um, but something, and I, I did just want to put this up here because this is a figure that, we, that I pulled from the AIS NEDC position statement. And it's really about the importance of considering low energy availability and disordered eating together. So if we're assessing for one, that we need to be assessing for the other. So they can occur in isolation, but they can also occur together. And the important part, and again, sorry, I'm gonna to skip to the next slide because this, this slide will make more sense. The authors in the IOC REDS consensus statement talk about advertent and inadvertent causes of LEA. And for me, that's very much what we're trying to assess here is, is it inadvertent or advertent? And if, if so, um, you know, what else is going on here? So a, a bit of a busy slide, I do apologise here, but I was trying to just talk through some examples of, um, and I'm hoping that you can see my cursor here, what might be, so, you know, I, I, I mentioned the inadvertent and the advertent from the REDS position statement, which, you know, unintentional or accidental, that's the way I like to look out of it. So um, when we're assessing the cause of nutritional imbalance, we really want to try and get a sense, is it unintentional or is it intentional? Because you know, I said before that a barrier to change, that if we're not assessing the reason for something, then we, we may not be identifying a barrier for change. And so an example might be here that if we identify an athlete has um, uh, inadequate calcium intake, for example, and it's just, I'll jump to it, but I am going to go through this table in a sec, that um, they're, not, they're not in at home. So there's less time spent at home. They eat breakfast and dinner at home and, you know, they're just not able to eat their calcium, meet their calcium requirements because they're not packing any dairy in their lunchbox. So that's a barrier. That's an unintentional reason. And so if we try and educate and we jump straight to, okay, well, let's just look how we can get some dairy into your um, lunchbox. If we're not also um, trying to identify if there are any other causes of dairy intake not being ideal or calcium intake, sorry, um, so an example may be that the athlete also has heard that um, dairy foods are high in sugar. And so they deliberately, you can see over here, I've got a deliberate food avoidance. So they're specifically trying to avoid dairy because they're concerned about the sugar. So does that make sense that, um, you know, we might identify that calcium is a concern and we might realise that we need to get some more calcium in their lunchbox. But if that's, if we don't, broaden our investigation, I guess is what I'm trying to say, and understand all of the reasons. I really hope that's made sense. If we follow through this table, um, growth and high training load can be unintentional causes. And so I've, I've then pulled them into lack of knowledge. And the way that I look at this is we, we know that some of our athletes, you know, if they're going through a massive growth spurt and or, you know, very high training requirements, that inadvertent low energy availability can occur. And so that might be around assessing knowledge and it's about, okay, what are the requirements for training and growth? How can we educate and work with these athletes to better, athletes, sorry, to better match their requirements? Um, another example might be just insufficient skills. So to plan, organize and manage food, um, time poor. We know a lot of our athletes, this um, our adolescent athletes, you know, um, many of the athletes I work with will 
uh, eat breakfast in the home and then leave for school, morning training, go straight to school, potentially straight to training after school. Um, you know, if there's jobs as well, if they're working part-time, you know, this time poor and the busy day syndrome can be really, really uh, prevalent in adolescent athletes. Um, I've talked about less time spent at home. Um, I think it was it Pascal that talked about, you know, uh, the high proportion of meals that can be spent. I don't know if I said that in the right order, sorry. High proportion of meals that can be eaten outside of the home in this group of athletes, um, which ties into the next one. Financial constraints, whether that's the athlete themselves, the family, a bit of both. Um, mental health conditions that could be impacting appetite, health issues that are impacting appetite or food varieties and thinking here things like food allergy, gut disturbances. It could be taste preferences. Um, you know, a common thing that I can hear in adolescent athletes at times is, well, they don't like the taste of red meat. So that could be impacting iron intake. Parental knowledge, skills and attitudes about food and nutritional needs. Um, and, and so, you know, I've got lack of knowledge. This was more around the athlete and then this one around the parent. And also then the parental body concerns. So it could be their own, the parent's own body concerns that are impacting the food in the house. You know, mum's on a diet or dad's on a diet. So we don't have X, Y, Z in the house. It could also too be the parent's concern for their child, the athlete. And um, that could be impacting the food in the house which I have also put over in this side in that we could actually see that as an intentional restriction of energy and or specific nutrients if a parent is purposely trying to limit food availability because of a belief they have about the athlete. So some other um, advertent reasons is this pursuit of perfect, quote unquote, eating, you know, the, the clean eating, that kind of thing. So it can be uh, not linked to body image to begin with. It's more around, all right, I'm an athlete, I want to eat really well, this perfect eating, which can lead to disordered eating and, and body image concerns. So we do need to be careful and cautious of that. Following a specific diet, but this one by choice, not by health. So um, it's a purposeful choice to restrict certain, whether it's macronutrients or micronutrients or the like. Um, I've touched on poor body image, but that most definitely, and it could look like deliberate food avoidance, deliberate restriction, um, over-exercise. So um, a body image uh, driven change and purposeful change in intake and or exercise. Um, and also here, purposeful weight and or body composition change would be something that someone, in, it's more of an intent, in our intentional column. And I've talked about that last one. I might move on and I just wanted to talk, this is my last slide on assessing causes of energy and nutritional imbalance. I just wanted to talk about parental influence, which I've kind of touched on and we'll keep talking throughout the talk. So we know there are three common, common parenting styles, sorry. So we've got authoritarian, permissive and authoritarian. And you can see um, it's a bit of a spectrum the little picture I've put down the bottom there around the permissive being hands-off, authoritative in the middle and authoritarian, the do as I say, strict rules. Um, I will talk about a bit more, but Ellen Satter, many of you will know and, and be well-versed in the division of responsibility, which would sit in our authoritative more kind of zone. So it can be really useful to gain an understanding of the parenting style or styles in the house, or if there are multiple houses that an adolescent might live in, um, and how that impacts the adolescent. And so something that we can, you know, we're all potentially impacted by a transgenerational feeding. So we feed our child in the way our parents and our grandparents fed our children. So we can either inherit that, but we actually may choose to reject that as well. So an example may be a permissive parent who's rejecting the more authoritarian feeding style of their parents and allowing their child to eat anything at any time with no boundaries. So really useful to get a sense of, of that environment and the relationship with the parents compared to our adolescent athletes. All right, we're gonna get into the second section, keeping an eye on the time. Um, I've broken this into two sections because to me this um, learning objective has, has two parts. 
So the first one is looking at how do we outlining standard and or specialised diagnostic methods to identify energy and nutritional imbalance in young athletes. And the way that I took this um, was more looking at, okay, what tools have we got to help us identify energy and nutritional imbalance in young athletes? So just going to go through them. So growth record history can be a really useful, and I mentioned this before, but having parents bring growth charts in for, of the adolescent and, and what their growth record and growth history has looked like and how that's plotted and, and changed or not changed over time can be really useful. Um, weight change, and again, I'd be using this potentially by plotting on the growth record history, and all these three points kind of are interrelated in that is there a change to the weight and potentially the height trajectory? So if we've got someone sitting on the 50th percentile and has done, but they've all of a sudden dropped off, you know, that can be something that can help us to identify that there's something going on and we need to investigate further. We've got DEXA and here I reference like using DEXA for bone mineral density um, and getting a sense of the Z score can help us to identify whether or not there's been, uh, this would be a much more longer um, potentially energy imbalance um, than an acute energy imbalance. We've got blood tests that can give us information and so whether this is around energy availability or also very specific micronutrients like iron, B12, um, but also specific hormones. Menstrual history we know is really useful in females, um, getting a sense of is there primary amenorrhea, secondary amenorrhea, what's it look like, um, what's the history been like. Certainly investigating gastrointestinal details, both current and past for the athlete can be really useful in helping us to identify energy and nutritional imbalances, injury and illnesses, both current and past, what's that been like for the athlete. Their eating history, and again here, this is where the parents can be really useful, talking about the athlete as a young child, what was it like introducing solids, that kind of stuff, getting a sense of the parenting style around food when they were younger, in primary school, in high school, has it changed? Is there, you know, patterns of eating different? What's it like over time? Um, not going to go into this in too much detail. Obviously, this is something we're all very, very used to and, and, and good at doing is diet histories. We haven't let us an athlete who potentially isn't the greatest diet historian. Could we look at 24-hour recall or something um, that might be useful? Using food frequency questionnaires for specific nutrients, I would definitely be using this. So things like calcium at nine, we know, um, uh, you know, we talked about in the past modules as being nutrients and micronutrients of specific interest and concern in adolescent athletes. Actually doing a food frequency questionnaire and really trying to check off intake of those can be useful. B12 can become in, um, important and relevant when, um, Adolescent athletes, if they're starting to consider ethical and environmental concerns around them trying a vegetarian diet, um, you know, if there's if the parents supportive in this, and if do, do meals take that into account, or are the parents more um, uh, assuming or expecting the athlete or the young person to make the changes themselves? Is B12 something that's potentially uh, missing in their diet? Even questions like how many days this week have you eaten or not eaten breakfast, you know, depends on the kind of questioning you need to get answers based on the, the you know, how good a diet historian, I guess, the athlete is. I then want to talk about a few screening tools that, that we could use in this space. Um, the ASNAP tool, I don't know if any of you guys are familiar with this, we've got some, you know, new research coming out that's really exciting and I think it's going to be really useful for some of our adolescent athletes of getting a sense. Um, so sorry, ASNAP stands for the Accelerated Sports Nutrition Assessment Platform and that includes the Athlete Diet Index and also um, the platform to evaluate athlete knowledge of sports nutrition questionnaire. That is a mouthful. I hope that I got it out correctly. Um, so really trying to get a sense and this for me is um, you know, is this a screening tool that we could use for athletes before they come in to see us? Um, the other reason it might be, so whether it's working one-on-one -on -one with an athlete if you're in private practice, but also when we're working with squads and we've got a large number of athletes and we're trying to prioritise who we might need to see first. I see this being a really useful tool for us in being able to prioritise 
um, who we might want to see first. The other thing too um, is if we've got group education sessions, for example, and you've done ASNAP with the group, you might be able to get a sense, okay, recovery nutrition is something that the group, you know, as a, as a whole is scoring lower on. So we might focus our education on that. Another tool I'm sure you're all familiar with is the LeafQ um, and Anna Malin's work around this. Um, our own Margot Rogers put out an interesting paper earlier this year, um, and if you haven't read it, I do recommend a read. LeafQ was validated in female endurance adolescent athletes. I think I've got that all correct. Um, but some of Margot's work has shown that you know, potentially we need caution when using LeafQ and, and interpreting LeafQ. Um, so something that Margot's paper says is that if someone is scoring less than eight on the LeafQ, we might be okay and I don't know, you'd ever be confident, but we might be able to say, okay, they have a lower risk of low energy availability. Um, but anyone scoring above eight, you wouldn't be you know, black and white, they definitely have low energy availability, you would be wanting to assess them in more detail. But again, it can be a really useful screening tool potentially to help you prioritise um, who you might be seeing in what order. The eating disorder screen for primary care. So the next two points that I want to make around the ESP and the SCOF, this is very much from a disordered eating, eating disorder point of view. Um, we don't diagnose for eating disorders as sports dietitians, but we can certainly, there's certainly many, many questions we would be ex wanting to ask and explore around body image, relationship with body, relationship with food, and I will talk about um, this kind of stuff more. Um, but some of these questions, the ESP, ESP sorry, specifically, I find really useful. Um, two key questions from that that can actually really tell you a lot about an athlete is around does your weight affect the way you feel about yourself? And the second one being, are you satisfied with your eating patterns? So um, even asking those two questions can give you a lot of insight into the athlete and, and where they might be sitting from a disordered eating point of view. Um, I think I'm going to move on. All right, so this was the second part and keeping aware of the time, we're about halfway through. So. When we're talking health implications associated with energy and nutrient imbalance, we've split this into both mental health and physical health implications. So I'll talk through the mental health first and then on the next slide we'll have physical health. Um, so some things we know is that, and, and you know, reference here a really interesting paper that if you haven't read it, you know, at some point in time, put it up, jot it on your list to follow up, the Minnesota Starvation Experiment. And it showed that um, with starvation and under-eating, there was an increase in stress, anxiety and depression um, in otherwise fit young male volunteers who didn't have concerns at the start of the experiment. So we know that energy imbalance can impact on mental health. As, as like if, At times it's a chicken or the egg is what I'm trying to say and that's what my next two points were kind of talk about energy and nutrient imbalance could worsen pre-existing mental health conditions and there could also be a heightened weight shape and eating preoccupation which could um, you know push someone from disordered eating or poor body image disordered eating into an, an eating disorder um, something else just quickly to mention here the impact of low iron so this is specifically one nutrient on mood and psychiatric disorders um, sorry, I I double clicked and I didn't. Um, but also to reference uh, the Food and Mood Centre and specifically the SMILES trial, which looked at dietary patterns rather than specific nutrients and do dietary patterns affect mood? And the main question that they were trying to answer there is if I improve my diet, will my mood improve? And there were some really interesting outcomes from that, um, which showed that yes, um, improving food could improve mood. In terms of physical health implications, I'm not going to spend too much time on this because for me, I feel like everyone's probably well versed in REDS and the physical con consequences. So other than the psychological in the, in the blue down here, we know that REDS and low energy availability can impact many, many 
body systems um, within our athletes. So, sorry, I'm moving on to the next point. So being aware of low energy availability and the impact that it can have on physical health is an important point I think I was trying to make there. Hydration, so whether it's under or over, can impact on physical health. So, um, you know, under hydration from a weight concern point of view, so someone who is dehydrated uh, because they're not drinking enough fluid or the impact of overhydration, and this could be using water to, to fill some stomach space. Flowed growth can occur, we know that. Um, and so I guess there's some things that are energy related and impact of low energy availability on physical health, but also then specific micronutrients can occur. So we know that there can be an impact on physical health based on specific micronutrient deficiencies too. All right, let's go to our next learning objective. We want to, here we're really looking at prevention. So I've just got a picture down the bottom and I'm going to talk through because prevention to me is, um, excuse me, apologies, there's three layers of prevention. So there's primary, secondary and tertiary prevention. Um, primary prevention is probably traditionally what we think of as prevention. So it's looking at um, preventing something from occurring. So how do we prevent acute and chronic energy and nutrient imbalances? And probably the point that I think you'll all agree with is primary prevention is our goal, that we would actually love to always be working in this space, but there are often times where we are in the secondary and tertiary space. All right, so the first point I want to make around primary prevention is that we're wanting to anticipate situations where energy expenditure will increase. So, for example, if we have someone who hasn't gone through their big growth spurt yet um, and energy intake isn't optimal and we know that they've got you know, more to come, that could be something that we could be looking at preventing. Oh, sorry, I probably would want to flip that. Okay, so at the moment they're eating enough to support what they need, but but they're not eating enough if, and, um, when their energy expenditure is going to increase. So how can we help them and put strategies in place to be able to increase when they need to? Um, another example is around training load change. So, for example, we might have an athlete that we know is in a squad and they train once a day, but they're, they're getting to the point where they're going to increase to training twice a day. And there's going to be a massive increase in energy expenditure. We can almost predict, can't we? And, and, and what we're really trying to do then is prevent low energy availability by helping that athlete to be able to increase their intake and adapt to the tra changing training load. Um, we want to educate on known barriers. So if we know our athletes are busy, we know that planning is an issue. Um, how can we help them to um, put some things in place before it becomes an issue? So it's kind of that thinking ahead, if that makes sense, and we're really looking at trying to prevent something from happening. I think this point is a really, really important one. Um, we're really wanting to build a resilient athlete that's flexible with transitions. And the two key words there for me is resilient and flexible. So some key work that we can do in this space is around positive body image. How do we you know, improve body image or get someone to a point where they do have a positive body image? Um, coping strategies, do they have coping strategies? If not, you know, it's always good to have coping strategies up your sleeve before you need them. Now, not always that we can do this, but um, if we're looking from a primary prevention point of view, that's something that definitely I'd be looking at. Things like intuitive eating, uh, listening to internal body cues, self-compassion are all really important components within this point that can, we can help um, with our athletes in this prevention space. And the last point for this bit is around normalising expected changes in growth and weight through adolescent years and also changes in body fat levels for girls. So it's about that predicting things that are going to happen, normalising them, um, you know, not, not something to be feared. This is something that is normal. It's okay. Um, it's expected. Again, coping strategy, those kind of things built in. If, um, you know, we want a, a positive body image, if the body changes, then we're, you know, are we able to make an athlete a bit more resilient with changes that go on in their bodies and for them? 
So secondary prevention is, is the way I like to think of it. It's around early identification. And sometimes this is where an athlete comes to us. And so it might be great. You might say that's lovely, Nikki, but we might always want to be in the primary prevention space, but it's not, not realistic that often we, we meet athletes and we're working with athletes in this space. And so trying to get a sense of have there been, you know, if you've been working with the athlete before, what are the changes? But also trying, if, if it's the first time you're working with an athlete, okay, what is their body image? What are their eating behaviours? What do we need to do? And what are we early identifying? Because what we really want to do is we want to stop movement. You can see what's coming next around the tertiary prevention. So if we're working in that secondary prevention space, how can we help to move them back down, you know, from that health disease, you can see this arrow I've got down the bottom here, um, you know, where I early identifying there's been movement, how can we help to move them back into this more, um, you know, health-like space, I guess. And from a tertiary prevention point of view, we are talking treatment here. And again, the same thing, you know, it'd be, it'd, I'm aware that there are times where an athlete might come to us and this is where they are. We've identified that, that an eating disorder, for example, has occurred what do we need to put in place? So is there early access to appropriate multidisciplinary team? Um, and because it's the same again, what we're trying to do is minimise the impact that it's having on the athlete. And the earlier we can identify and move them back down towards this more health space, um, the better outcomes we're trying to drive. That's it for that slide. Okay, last learning objective, keeping an eye on the time. I think like we are tracking nicely. So how do we manage and cure acute and chronic energy and nutritional imbalances? So I guess this for me is we've done our assessment, we've used you know, our diagnostic screening tools, we've asked our questions, we've got a sense of what's going on with the athlete. Um, it's then a lot about getting a sense of, okay, if it's unintentional, we're identifying that, how do we educate, can we give practical examples? I did say, and I probably should have saved it for this bit, but I already talked about the fact that sometimes we might have something that is, I gave the calcium example, didn't I, of um, an imbalance that was both unintentional and intentional. So it's about work, working at whatever angles we need to to help correct the energy and or nutrient imbalances that might be going on. If it's intentional, probably um, going to require a bit more work probably a big generalisation, but my experience is that unintentional might be, I don't want to say it, but, you know, quote, unquote, a little bit easier. Um, whereas if it's intentional, there's probably some more work that is needed. It is not just as simple as educating and giving a practical example to overcome the barrier. Um, you know, if it is poor body image, it's, it's not just as simple as saying, well, you just need to eat more because you do. Um, you know, that there is a lot more going on that we need to keep in mind. So what are the multidisciplinary team involvements, psych, medical, um, most definitely. Is there specialist referral that's required? So, I mean, it, it depends our role as sports dietitians. There are some sports dietitians who are really comfortable in this space, have done a lot of training and have a lot of experience, save supervision, all of that kind of stuff, and, and are really okay to work in this space. There may be others who say, actually, this is a space that I'm not so comfortable in. Um, so do I need to look at referral on? Um, if that is you, a little challenge that I might have for you is what do you, what could you do to get more comfortable in this space? Um, and probably the first thing I would say is clinical supervision being super important and, and really um, useful in this space. We want to make sure we are staying within our boundaries and our scope of practice and what we are able to do. So clinical supervision really helps with that. Um, do we need to refer on? Um, and I think there's something that's, that can be interesting here is there can be a gap between referral and getting in. Um, you know, the world we're living in at the moment in the pandemic, I'm sure everyone's aware of the, the impact it's having on our adolescents and mental health and our eating disorder services are stretched and uh, you know, you might identify that you need to hand an athlete on and it's the right thing to do, but if they can't access support for a few months, you might need to provide that support. So again, what can you do to help keep you and the athlete safe in that time? Things like assessing stage of change, psychoeducation, motivational interviewing all become really important in this space. 
And I've talked about a number of times, I think it's really important here that when we're trying to manage energy and nutrient imbalances, what, what is the involvement of parents and how are we involving, um, involving parents, sorry. Um, so things like I said at Ellen Satter's division of responsibility becoming really important in the parent's role as to decide what, where, when, and the child deciding whether and how much, how did I do with that? Um, you know, this is still relevant in, in our adolescence. So it's about, you know, there's times where we might need to be educating parents on their role, working with the parents. I think we want to be really conscious from the young person and the adolescent's point of view of how we do work with parents. You don't want, um, oh, sorry, just to take a step back, Sharon talked in the case study about how, um, you know, she did actually ask Sarah's mum to leave the room at one point. She had a conversation with Sarah on her own. Um, and it can be really useful to have parents in the room. I've talked about reasons why you might do that. It can also be really useful to have the adolescent on their, their own. Um, and if you do that, I would then very much be talking before. And so it might be that the parents there at the start and at the end. And so an example might be talking with the adolescent about, okay, what would, what would you like to share with your parent when they come back into the room? What would you like not to share? Um, what can they do that can be helpful or useful or supportive or what might be, um, you know, not helpful or supportive? So involving the parents being really important but also having the adolescent and having some ownership around that too is important. All right. We're going to go back to Sarah. I said we'd do that. So um, for those of you who might have listened to Ben and Sharon's module two yet, or it was a month ago, you might have just forgotten, a bit of a quick recap on Sarah. So she was initially referred to Sharon, who's a sports physician, with right shoulder pain. So she's a 15-year-old swimmer, trains in a squad, lives at home, so up in Brizzy. She's got supportive parents. Um, I loved how Sharon talked about the relationship that she had and how Sharon was also assessing their relationship. You know, the mother and daughter, the mother was letting um, Sarah answer a lot of questions. They made eye contact. They added um, to each other and what they were saying. Um, so we've got a good sense of that parental relationship. Uh, Sarah's an excellent communicator. There was a comment um, that the coach thinks she's too heavy and Sarah made a comment to Sharon around well, you know, she's had a poor appetite and had been sick and so she was hoping that that would actually help her to lose some weight because the coach had suggested she might be a bit too heavy. So she's been seeing Sharon and Ben in Brisbane and after multiple visits with those guys, I put together this little slide which Sharon, Sharon talked about and, and I love this. I really loved how Sharon said it because I think you guys are all, you know, how often is this the case that someone is referred to you for, you know, quote unquote, a simple, you know, reason and it ends up being very, very complex. So Sarah came in, as you can see, referred to Sharon with right shoulder pain and very quickly the uh, picture that emerged from Sharon and Ben was something that wasn't so simple and it wasn't just this right shoulder pain. So we had right shoulder pain, then fatigue and then poor nutrition knowledge and intake and a reduced appetite. At this point, Sharon referred to Ben. Um, Sarah then had an MRI. She had some blood tests, so a bit of, um, you know, some more uh, exploratory um, tests to see what was going on. Diagnosed with right supraspinatus tendinopathy. We've still got fatigue. Da 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 da. Blood tests found iron deficiency and also glandular fever. And then this, as Sharon and Ben had more consults. We then also had, where am I up to, um, some body image concerns, potentially restrictive eating, um, pressure for sex, low sex education literacy, and then there was a query LEA. So this was where we left Sarah after module two. Now what's happened to Sarah is she and her family have actually recently relocated to Canberra, which is where I am. And so she started at a new school and she's in a new swimming squad. So Sharon's referred her to a sports physician in Canberra but the initial consult's not for another two months. And so Sharon's going to keep seeing her with some teleconsults till then. But Ben and Sharon have referred her to me. And so we're going to talk through maybe some of these initial um, sessions that I would have with Sarah. All right. So first things first, 
before the initial consult, I've got my beautiful referral and handover from Ben and Sharon. What do I already know? I already know that she's got low iron. She's got a regular menstrual function. She's got illness history. She's got injuries. And LEA is looking likely. So the piece of the puzzle, the pieces of the puzzle that I have already, I am and Sharon already had this, you know, we're really suspecting low energy availability. So before the consult, some things that I'm wanting to get a sense of, is I'm wanting to explore this LEA in more detail, obviously. I want to get a sense of is it inadvertent, is it advertent? What's her body image like? Sorry, this is where I'm up to, what I'm exploring. What's her body image like? What's her relationship with food? All of that stuff that we've talked about in the assessing section today. Um, Sharon's flag restrictive eating. Okay, what does that look like? What's that? How, you know, what's the extent of the restriction that's going on? And so something that I would be trying to do is plot Sarah on the spectrum of eating behaviour. So I do this with all of my athletes. So Sarah is no exception. I'm trying to get a sense of where does she sit. So from what I've got, um, you know, I'm, I'm probably thinking she might be sitting in the disordered eating space. Is it down this end? Is it further up this end? Is it into the eating disorder concern? I don't know at this point in time, and it's something that I really do want to explore in the consult. First and foremost, what I'm trying to do, develop rapport. I want to gain her trust. So Sarah had a great relationship with Ben and Sharon, and she's having to come to me, and she's having to tell her story again, and she's having to revisit stuff that she's already done. So I'm really, really conscious and aware of that. Um, and I really want to develop rapport with her and build that trust with Sarah. I'm probably going to prioritise question. Not probably, I am. I've got a lot of questions that I could ask, but I have 45 minutes. And so I do need to be aware, what are my priorities here? And what do I need to, to prioritise to ask today? And that will depend on the answers she gives, um, most definitely. So I might go in with an idea of some things that I might like to ask. But depending on her answers, I will be reprioritising as I go. I do want her to come back. That is something that I know is that not because I'm in private practice and I want business, I'm not in private practice, but does that make sense? I want her to come back because I have concerns and I want to make sure I've got rapport and I want her to come back. So something that I'd be really conscious about is, is there something that I can give her that adds value? So something I might ask early on is, what are you hoping to get out of the session? You've been seeing Ben, you know, what have you covered with Ben? I know what she's covered with Ben, but can be really interesting to get a sense of what what she thinks has been covered. What have you learned? Is there anything you've changed? And then what what can I, you know, what can I value add for her? Sharon made the interesting point um, in one of her consults um, in the last module, and it was around you know the shoulder pain. To be frank, I'm paraphrasing Sharon's words, but the shoulder pain was the least of Sharon's concerns but she knew that she couldn't not address them because that's what the mum and Sarah had come about. The referral was about the shoulder pain, so she did need to address that. And it's the same here for us. What does Sarah want out of the consult and what can we do for value add? Um, something that I might be trying to do is um, to help me... Um, to help me plot where Sarah's sitting on this spectrum of eating behaviour is a number of things I'm looking at here. I'm looking at body image. I'm looking at whether or not body image is impacting her food choices. And you can see I'm kind of moving along here because if we've got concerning body image that's impacting food choices, we're starting to move along. Um, but I might be able to get... I don't feel like I ever pinpoint exactly. I don't think that's what we're trying to do is say, okay, Sarah sits exactly here probably a bit more lack of range. And in the consult, I might get a pretty good sense, but I can actually start building a better picture the more I know of Sarah. So something I might do in this initial consult is find something that I think is safe, but that I can challenge her with. So an example might be identify calcium. Sorry, I keep harping on about calcium, but there's no calcium in the lunchbox. She's out all day. She's not getting her four, three to four serves of, of calcium. Um, and so that might be something safe that I can get her to, to, um, to challenge. All right, let's try and put some calcium into your lunchbox. Um, it might be getting her to cook a meal. Ben talked about that. She didn't have a lot of nutrition skills and something he challenged her on. Had she, had she cooked any meals, talk to me about that. 
something that I might then get a sense of is, okay, so calcium's quite safe, dairy foods are safe, she's really happy to put those in. Um, but part of the restriction in our consult, and we're, you know, we're talking specifically about this restriction, is that she's a bit carb phobic and carbs become harder the longer the days the day goes on. So from afternoon tea, we might see Sarah restricting carb intake and by dinner there's not much at all. So in my mind, I might know that I want carbs in dinner because that's something that's important. She finishes training, dinner is recovery. I, I want some, some carbs in dinner. But it might be easier for me to challenge carbs earlier in the day. So, for example, at um, afternoon tea, I'm, that might be where I challenge <clears throat> in an initial concept, consult, sorry, is getting some carbs into that afternoon tea um, because that might be a bit safer and a bit easier. That's what I've assessed in my initial talkings with Sarah, that that's going to be easier to do than at dinner. So I know where my end game is, but I'm going to get a sense of that. When she comes back, and I'll jump back to that in a sec too, is Sarah's ability to do those things and not can help me to get a sense of where she does sit on this spectrum. So I might think that she's sitting, you know, uh, orangish to red, she can easily, she easily puts carbohydrate into afternoon tea, causes no problems, no distress. You know, that's going to, I will be plotting her lower to the left, probably pointing the right way with the camera going down. Whereas if she really finds it hard to put carbohydrate into afternoon tea, does that make sense that that's going to help me to be getting a better sense of where she's sitting on this spectrum of eating behaviour? Um, after the consult, and in between consults, I will often write myself some notes. What I didn't cover, what didn't I get to? 45 minutes, chances are I'm not going to be able to have covered everything. So what do I need to come back to next consult? What might needs exploring? What do we need to dig deeper in? You know, I might have asked some superficial questions about something, got some resistance, not sure, um, you know, felt it was okay to park it and come back to it. I'd be making sure I wrote those notes for myself so then I can remember to come back to them next time. Um, I might talk with Sharon. I might clarify stuff with Ben um, if there's things that I needed to. Then in the follow-up consults, and I kind of mentioned this already, identifying um, whether or not Sarah has been able to, her ability to implement suggestions. Sorry, I've jumped and skipped one. So has she been able to put into place the things that we discussed last time? If they were hard, um, how hard was it? Was it easy? Was it not? If they weren't able to, why not? What were the barriers? Um, a barrier could just have been practical, just practically couldn't do it. It wasn't about, you know, my concern over carbohydrates. So getting a sense of why it didn't happen can give you a lot of insight. We do want to be identifying change here. So for someone like Sarah, you know, we may see that in the subsequent the consult, she's moved away from home as in Brisbane, all the family have moved direct, moved down, but, you know, she's missing home, she's missing her boyfriend, she's missing her squad, uh, she's very nervous about starting with the new coach and, you know, she'd been out of training for a while, her, um, her fitness has dropped off, she's not swimming as fast as she was, she's really nervous about that, how's the coach going to react and, you know, um, is there change? I would certainly be wanting to get a sense, um, has Sarah changed at all? Oh, sorry, not everything. Okay, that's the slide. Um, flexibility being a key that I'd be looking in these follow-up consults. Is there flexibility to do things that I've asked? Um, and, and, you know, has she been able to follow on with the areas that, you know, I would, sorry, want to follow on with the areas that I noted that I wanted to explore more? I'm going to leave that be. Sorry, I've talked about that for a bit longer than planned. I just lost, lost time. It's 1.29. Um, really quickly, there's lots of resources that I've um, used throughout this, but I'd suggest the Butterfly Foundation is brilliant. They have a Body Kind Families, which is a new um, program with uh, lots of great resources. If you haven't seen it or heard of it, jump on their website, have a look. Butterfly National Helpline um, for people to be able to call is really useful to be able to give families. Um, what else? I might I might leave all this for now. Um, it's all there. People can follow that up later. And I might just skip to the last slide, which is our learning objectives. Hopefully, we've covered off on all of those. 
And I'm going to say a very big apologies. Well, it's still 1.29, so I can say I did finish within the hour. Um, and I might hand back to, to Beth and just see if she has or if there are any questions that anyone has um, now. Thanks, Nikki. That's um, perfect timing. <laughs> um, I haven't seen any questions come up, um, but we have had a request to get some of those key references that Nikki referred to uploaded onto Moodle. So we'll follow up with that um, with Nikki and we'll get some of those, those key resources that have been mentioned up so that you can refer to them when you need to. Thanks today, Nikki. Some really great practical suggestions there. I'm sure everyone... Um, got a lot out of that. I will ask everyone who's listening, thank you for joining us today. Remember that you can log your CDP points, 10 points for today's webinar. And also um, as you exit, you'll be asked to fill in the poll, just asking you some questions about today's webinar. And I hope to see you next time uh, in our, num our lecture number four uh, next month. So thanks everyone for joining us and take care. <laughs>